Hello, welcome to Aero Bandwidth, your source for everything you need to know about the technologies, trends, and concepts that are steering our industry today. We hope that you enjoy this episode, and if you do, please subscribe. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Arrow Bandwidth Big Data Edition. And a uh, bit of a special one this week. I'm actually in our headquarters in Denver, in uh, in Colorado, joined by one of my other practice leaders, Mr. David Potter. Hey, David. Thanks for being over here with us. And we have a special guest, Christoph. Would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Christoph Wirtz. I'm a systems engineer with Cloudera, and I've been working in the big data space for uh, a couple of decades now. Couple of decades, so before it was even before big data. It was even called big data. That's what we like to hear. That's what we like to hear. So, we thought um, really good opportunity because I think one of my one of the questions I came out of when we started talking earlier on was, you know, I, I know the Hadoop ecosystem from you know, the back back in the old days when it was MapReduce, massive clusters, you know, coming out of Yahoo and things like that. Appreciate it's moved forward significantly from that point. So, could you start us off? Real start for ten. What is what was, what is, what's been the transition? What's the story of, of modern day Hadoop, Cloudera? Obviously, there's been a massive acquisition as well. You know, just, just give us a bit of background because I think it's a really interesting story to sort of set the scene. No, absolutely. Um, if you think about it in terms of where big data started and Hadoop in particular, um, it all started with a, a paper that was published by Google Research, which was uh, GFS and MapReduce. Mm-hmm. So that was the Google file system. Um, which was a distributed fault-tolerant file system, and that's what turned into the open source project that was HDFS, or the Hadoop file system, and MapReduce. Um, at some point in time, you can only scale up a server so large, and the only other option is to scale out. Um, and if you're downloading the entire internet, which is what Google is trying to do mm. with an index, <laughs> you need hundreds, if not thousands, of servers. Right. And so, so the first iteration of Hadoop was really you know, HDFS and MapReduce, um, but MapReduce is a, is a programmatic API. It's Java-based and programmatic. And so in order to use it, you need to have Java programmers. Um, what Yahoo did was they have a lot of SQL programmers. So they created Hive, and Hive is a SQL interface, and it's a SQL interface that essentially generates MapReduce code for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's going back. I think the original GFS MapReduce paper was like 2006. So when a lot of people think about big data and they think about Hadoop, they, they think of that, ori- the, that original MapReduce framework. Mm-hmm. Um, the ecosystem's moved so far beyond that. The whole ecosystem is moving more towards like near real-time streaming. MapReduce is very batch-oriented, and the present and the future is about near real-time streaming with machine learning and predictive analytics. Yeah. The biggest change in that um, area has really been the Spark, um, Spark ecosystem, and so Apache Spark is the open source uh, project that's essentially replaced MapReduce, or is repl- in the pro- you know replacing MapReduce, and so you know that's Spark streaming, Spark SQL, and and that's that's the algorithm or approach that's really kind of replaced uh, MapReduce, replacing MapReduce. Um, there's also SQL interfaces of which Hive was a SQL interface that generated code for for MapReduce, and then Clutter obviously has Impala which is uh, more near real-time in-memory processing for, as, for a SQL engine for mm-hmm. data warehousing. Um, and so you see streaming data coming in, you see near real-time processing. If you need iterative processing, you're gonna be using Spark. If you wanna do uh, more like interactive SQL or SQL analytics or SQL queries, you're gonna use something like um, Hive on Tez or Impala. Um, and then on, on, 
on further down the stream, you're going to be doing machine learning analytics and predictive analytics. So it's a bit of a, a tool, tool toolbox for it is. just about anything you want to do in data and, and to be able to manipulate and, and sort of interrogate data. So from what you've just described, it sounds really complicated. I mean, how do how does Cloudera go about actually making that gigantic bucket of open source, fundamentally open source bits into something that's much more consumable? Because I mean, I've had experience deploying Hadoop in the past and it's always a bit of a pain because there's always little bits that don't quite work perfectly and there's a bit of you know workarounds and things fail. And how do you make it more sort of consumable to the enterprise? It is absolutely complex. Um, I think the Cloudera platform is at least 26 different Apache open source projects that are all <laughs> integrated together yeah. um, with a common security platform, data governance lineage. Um, and, and the way Cloudera does that is that we manage the configuration and the integration of all those pro- products and projects with each other. And so, mm. you know, Cloudera Manager will make sure that your configuration for HDFS is in line with what's needed for the other components that are in the system. So if you have a cluster set up just for streaming, like a Kafka cluster with, with Flume perhaps, just to do for like streaming ingest, mm-hmm. um, and then you wanna stream that into like an HBase cluster or a Kudu cluster, Clutter Manager is gonna manage the configuration for both of those. Yeah. And it's gonna allow you to, ma- to monitor and manage those configurations and see if there's any issues with the, all the way down to the hardware level, right? Even all the way down to the disk level, the machine level, the network level, all the way up to the service integration, to the, the connection of those services in Clutter and Manager and allowing them to communicate with each other. Fantastic. So last piece of sort of positioning before we start talking about more interesting things. Sure. <laughs> but the sort of the real sort of bare bone stuff, where is it positioned? So, I mean, obviously it's not like a... Let me think how, I'm gonna, how I can dis- describe this because, you know, I think one of the problems that Cloudera suffered from, especially in the channel, I mean, this is a channel-focused podcast, so... Right. You know, it's suffered from this sort of being a bit terrifying as to exactly where to where to utilize it versus smaller, more sort of BI focused tools. I mean, where today is Cloudera's sweet spot? Where, what type of workloads? What examples of sort of things it it, it fixes and it, it does a better job than than other pieces of technology out there? So where it really does a better job is the ability to bring in data from all of these disparate data sources. They talk about velocity, variety, and volume, right? And so you can bring in structured and unstructured data. And it's a one platform where you can really co-locate all of these different types of data. Mm-hmm. And it's schema on read, which means that you don't have to worry about someone taking the time to set up a schema before you can actually write to it. You can basically put all of your data in it. And then, and then from there, you can start transforming and trying to drive value out of it. And so the cost of storage is so much lighter so much the cost of storage is so much less than other appliances Mm -hmm. and so the ability to scale out and actually store terabytes or petabytes of data you know your your cost per terabyte or cost per petabyte is going to be a lot lower than other um, higher priced type storage mechanisms Um, and then just the ability to even process that data yeah you know you're talking about data at such large scales that you know, there's there's other solutions that just can't even begin to process that data. Yeah, that's really, really powerful. So it's really about companies trying to bring in data from all of their systems and then doing the analytics on it and trying to drive value out of that data. Fantastic. So obviously uh, we wouldn't, yeah, we wouldn't be doing our listeners justice if we didn't bring up the fact that you guys have just gone through 
quite a major acquisition of what I'd probably, and I think we can all agree, is the only other competitor in this space, which is Hortonworks. Right. So, I mean, that, that personally took me by surprise. David, I don't know about you. I, I was completely out of left field. Yeah. I, but the more you think about it, the more it makes sense. Yeah, it's actually a really great fit when you do think about it because mm. uh, Hortonworks is really focused a lot on the ingest side. So if you think of like NiFi and kind of their HDF or Hort, uh, data flow product, so they've really focused on trying to bring data to the platform. Yeah. And Cloudera is really focused on machine learning with their data science workbench or CDSW. And so, but there's also a lot of overlap. We're both developing HDF, H, HDFS. We're both uh, working on MapReduce. We're both yeah. working on all of the common components that we ship as a common core part of our platform. And so the merger allows us to basically combine forces, stop competing against each other, double yeah. down on our engineering efforts, focus on those core central components, and then make sure that we that we can accelerate in the marketplace. Which should be a benefit to the customer net-net, right? It will absolutely be a benefit to the customer net-net. Our yeah. Unity platform will be taking the best of each of the components from both platforms and, and providing a unified platform that our customers can use. So the Unity platform will be what you're going to call the first version of the combined yeah, Hortonworks the Cloudera. Platform is just the, the vision of what we're going, you know, the, the unified Hortonworks and Cloudera platform and the best of breed of, of both of those platforms going forward for our customers. Okay. And the tagline being from edge to AI. So we're going to enable our customers to ingest near real time streaming data, do analytics on it, and then do train models on it, do predictive analytics on it, and then serve those models at the same time. So going into the weeds a little bit, specifically about models and, and about the, the data science workbench piece. Is that machine learning, deep learning, combination of the both? You know, where, what exactly is that product? Because I think that's a real value add on top of, you know, I think a lot of the things we've spoken about are still quite in the weeds technologies if you're leveraging Spark and things like that and, and Hybrid and Parler. But Data Science Workbench, that sounds like a more of a, a tool that could be democratized so that other people, you know, people who aren't full on data scientists could actually get access to data and start to run experimentation. Is that? Mind the right ballpark, yes, or is it? It absolutely is. I mean, it, it provides a notebook interface where you can work with uh, Scala, Python, or R, um, and anyone can get in there and access the data. And it's it's about doing data science at scale, and it's also follows the same security model as the rest of the platform. Mm -hmm. So whatever whatever security you've implemented on top of the platform, CDSW follows the same security model. Yeah. So you're not worried about someone downloading a bunch of data and then walking out the door with that data, right? It's not walking out the door on their laptop. Right? Yeah. And so it, it, it enables people to have access and experiment and explore that data and try to figure out how to drive value from that data. Yeah. And I suppose security is critical because, I mean, I suppose that's been one of the places where big data, you know, big data equals big security problem, mm -hmm. right, David? Yeah. And that's something that we were talking about a little bit before this is, I'm curious for a couple reasons, obviously from a skills gap and how I think you know AI machine learning can address some of the just the volume of security events that come in but but yeah the the idea is that as these tools get easier to use you know I don't come from that background from the the big data background so I can barely script my way out of a wet paper bag these days right but <laughs> from the security standpoint I got that but the it's a double-edged sword though as we make these tools easier and easier for schmucks like me to use that data becomes that much more valuable, right? You give somebody two terabytes of this stuff and they don't know what to do with it because they need to be a full-blown data scientist, okay. But yeah, so the protection of that has, has got to become paramount. Absolutely, you have to have a secure enterprise platform. And that's yeah. what Cloudera brings to the table. Gotcha. 
Um, and then you also have to have data governance, lineage, mm -hmm. and that's what Navigator brings to the table. We have companies that have actually solved for GDPR. We just saw that Google got signed, got fined $58 million mm -hmm. by France. Mm -hmm. um, we have we have companies that are using our Cloud Our Navigator tool to actually solve for data governance and lineage to make sure that they're going to avoid those sorts of fines. Yeah, I suppose that's a good, good segue into another conversation, which is all about the not so sexy stuff, which is data governance, data cleansing, data, all of that sort of preparing or making sure the data is is standard. And, and obviously, in a structured database, that's reasonably simple. But when you're talking about schema on read type systems where you can ingest stuff at speed, at, in any format, in any, how, how, do, how do you go about providing some level of uh, compliance or data governance? Well, first of all, it's about having lineage because the, the pattern that you follow with big data is you ingest data, you process data, and then you report on that data. Mm -hmm. So you typically have a landing zone where you bring in your raw data, mm -hmm. and then you're going to transform that data into another format, and then you may even transform it again into a final format that you use for, for reporting. So the critical piece there is that what's the lineage, mm -hmm. right? When you land that data in, in a cluster, for instance, and it's PII data, mm -hmm. right, in its raw format, and then you transform that data into a format that might be used in a machine learning algorithm, what's happened to that PII data along the way and what tables is it in and who's ha who has access to it. And so, no, those may not be the sexy pieces of it, but it's part of delivering an enterprise platform. Yeah, and it's a really important bit of it. So we had a, a bit of a sidebar conversation that I'll, I'll give some context around. So lineage is an important thing, right? Talk about, in, or you know, related maybe provenance. Tangential but somewhat related, do you see a use potentially there for blockchain? I mean, when you think about data lineage and knowing where your data sources come from or have you guys thought about how that might play or, or what impact that might have? Um, I actually don't. I think uh, blockchain is a little overhyped when it comes to that. And yeah. um, I think there have been, you know, there's been some discussion of trying to tie the two together. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't really think that it's it's applicable in that, in that sense. Yeah, it, it's definitely uh, yeah. the super buzzword of the sure, day. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, like, like talking about deep learning, right? Yeah. Deep learning is just, you know, one, one approach to machine learning, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and really these... These algorithms have been around for what three decades now. I think I think some of the, the deep learning algorithms have been around since maybe the eighties in terms of the architectures, right? What's changed is that we now have the hardware mm -hmm. to process the volumes of data. Mm -hmm. And what we're finding in machine learning is that more data always wins over better algorithms. And yeah. and, and so now we have more data mm -hmm. because we have the ability to store and process more data. Right. Right. And then we also have the hardware um, to, to, to compute on that data. And so um, that's really where having more data and, and then leveraging that with deep learning, which is really just neural networks stat, stacked deeply mm -hmm. one after the other, that allows you to actually to predict and do predictive analytics on the data. And we find that the accuracy of those models is so much higher than what we've seen in the past. Yeah. Yeah, I must admit, I've, I've seen that both theoretically and practically when I've done built machine learning and deep learning models where having much, much more accurate and much more training data yields much bigger accuracy returns than having a you know, tuning and retuning and retuning your actual algorithm and your model. I mean, I must admit, it's, it's, it was quite stark. Um, and it sort of is obvious, but I think a lot of people, um, you know, when we talk about data science and we talk about doing machine learning and things like that, once again, the data scientist doesn't understand the the field doesn't understand the the vertical specific nuances of how predicting i don't know something really specific in a specific 
industry. Absolutely. Like think of something like maybe predictive maintenance or fraud for that yeah. instance, right? Mm-hmm. If you have billions and billions of transactions, how are you going to hand code what the fraud algorithm is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you, have, if you have millions and millions of, of sensors that are producing terabytes or petabytes of data, how are you going to hand code the algorithm that defines yeah. when that sensor might fail? Right. Right. And so what deep learning does is it allows, it allows the, the algorithms to actually derive that directly yeah. from the data. I suppose my point is that I'm trying to, it's more data scientists know data science. Right. They don't know fraud. They don't know about, right. you know, what drives a criminal or what looks like good training data to sort of put into the network. The problem we've had up till recently has been that data science has been such a, a university project and a, a sort of complicated field of field of study mm-hmm. that the tools haven't been there to democratize access to deep learning to allow the people that really should be training these models who are the industry experts the you know those those guys who have been in fraud for years and years and years know what fraud looks like can create really accurate and really sort of um, detailed training data models that then go into networks where the data scientists have designed a, a specific type of network to go and do the actual build that well, pump out that model that then does the prediction of is that a fraudulent transaction or not. I think one of the things that I've been really impressed with recently, and I think Data Science Workbench is one of these, is where companies have gone to length to try and democratize access to data science. And I can't remember, the, uh, there's a word for it. It's like um, every everyone, oh, simplistic, I can't remember. There's a, really, there's a really interesting term that's like democratized data science, but it's, it's a more succinct term. Right. But anyway... No, it absolutely allows the data scientists yeah. to have access to the data and explore it and build models on it and, and bring what they've learned from university in terms of building those machine learning models and try to apply it to the, the data sets that they have available, but also create keep them secure for the companies that, that, that need to make sure that yeah. that data stays secure. Right? Yeah. But I mean, as I say, democratize, in my, in my mind, data science, uh, well, here's the question as well. Data science is, is, a, is a really complex field. What's more important, an algorithm developer or someone who knows the nuances of, of the actual data that they're working with and can refine the training data set to be more accurate to the field that they're trying to predict for. I would say what's most important is enabling people to have the ability to iterate. More than anything else is to, is to give them the ability to iterate and learn and mm-hmm. do that quickly. Mm-hmm. Because the faster they can iterate, the more they can learn, whether it's about the business or whether it's about the model that they're working on. And so it's really about giving them the agility to iterate rapidly on the models that they're yeah. building and experiment and, and, and put those into production. Yeah, I couldn't, because I must admit, I, I find myself often re- reminding, so this is one of the interesting things in, in data science is that more often than not, people that work in, in this field, in the field of IT, experimentation is not something that they're used to. They're used to, right, let's do a proof of concept. That's not an experiment, that's a proof of concept and it's it's meant to work. If it doesn't work, that's not a good thing, that's a bad thing. Right. Science, very different. Science, if it fails, as long as you learn from the failure, that's success. Data science is exactly that. Actually, sometimes it won't work, but that's fine. You know, you, you try, you try, you try. As you say, you iterate through many different, well, many different models, many different types of training data set, many different, you know, hyperparameters if we're really getting detailed into, into model dynamics. And that's what I think, one of the things where I found people still struggling is, but, you know, I... 
it's science, guys. Just experiment. Have a go. See right. what you so this this enables them to do those experiments. Yeah, exactly. And iterate quickly and to do it with the tools that they're already familiar yeah. with. Because right. more more often than not, when people are actually truly engaged in data science, they find insights they weren't looking for. Right. And I think that's one of the things where I, I'm struggling with telling people. I can't tell people enough. I can't beat them around the head enough with this stick that you know you've got if you've got a massive data warehouse at the moment and or, or a data lake or some storage or databases and you're pumping data in at a rapid rate of knots and you don't really think you're getting full value from that data you're almost definitely right because you can take that data blend it with other data enrich it with other data graph it and all of a sudden you may see a trend or you may see an inflection point in in a visualization of that data that you did not know existed and that might help you to make a really startling process or business change or or change the way you sell something that could fundamentally affect your business going Absolutely. forward. And that I think is the really amazing bit of where we are today is that we've we've got this opportunity through the tooling, as you said, through the compute platforms that are able to to compute and crunch it. He said someone came to me and said, Oh, you know, this is all really cool. I was like AI was discovered or machine learning was discovered in the fifties, right? It's just that today we have the ability to do it in a period of time that makes sense and we can do more data. Yeah, in a period of time that makes sense and we're able to throw hardware at the problem too. Mm-hmm. So yeah. for instance, Data Science Workbench supports GPUs. Yeah, so it can run on top right. of... So, so you'll find that with some deep learning training, you're actually going to be better off training on GPUs, on edge nodes, on Data Science Workbench than you would using PySpark on the cluster. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, you can do TensorFlow in Python on Data Science Workbench and those are massively parallel operations. And that's what GPUs are designed for. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think that's where um, that's where it becomes really interesting, and, and the ability for companies to see value. Uh, one of my biggest bugbears with with enterprises today, certainly a lot of the enterprises I've gone and visited, is when you ask them one very simple question: "What is your enterprise data strategy?" And they sit there and go, "Well, you know, it's 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 this." And then someone else in the meeting sparks up and pipes up and goes, well, we've also got that. And then there's there's this little thing and, and there's that big thing. And then there's this pots of data all over the place that come to think of it, they're not joined up at all. Probably really valuable if we could join them up. And all of a sudden you go, okay, this is where something like a, a cloud era can come in. And as you said, right at the very, very start, uh, absolutely. what's there's, it most valuable there's, for? There's different areas that they can focus on. I mean, you can do OLTP offload where you're, where you're focused mostly on like analytic processing and trying to drive reports. Um, you could be focused on becoming a data-driven company and trying to do predictive analytics yep. and, and using that to drive decision-making in the company. And so there, all of those things can be derived from the same platform. So, oh, go on, David. No, so coming from the, the least intelligent guy in the room on this topic, which I'm okay with that, it's, I can sit here and you know, we're, we're down the weeds. So, but as I'm sure a lot of our newer listeners have come into this with the big data thing because it's cool. And I'm, I'm not disparaging it at all. Right. But same with security, right? And over the last five, 10 years, they've come to me with security is cool. How do I do that? So, the question, you know, obviously for our channel partners and then non as sophisticated partners is probably makes a two part question. Is big data the same as analytics, the same as data intelligence would be part one? And then part two of that is how does a company get started on that? I mean, it, I get that there's all this data, and, and I get I love the idea of poking at stuff and playing with stuff, and I could nerd out on that. <laughs> but the guys that write our checks aren't going to pay for that kind of thing from yeah. a, from a business decision. So, yeah, I mean, are there are there ways, are there places cycle. to start? Yeah. I mean, well, I guess my, my the the underlying question is, 
where's a good place to start for like that immediate like yeah yeah that's cool man and because I get it you hit it and then it's like oh I could do this and I could do this but how do you like what's what's and I, I hate to I'm not trying to disparage the the scene but what's what's a good place to start for folks well a quick place to start is just to start bringing data into your cluster and and put some business analysts on top of it and let them let them work on it with a dashboard like Tableau or some other BI mm-hmm. tool mm-hmm. right let them start exploring your data mm-hmm. um, uh, build reports that you generate from the system, right? Gotcha. So you can do you can do offload ETL offload obviously very easily. It's a mm-hmm. simple place to start. Where it gets more complex is when you're trying to build models because you don't necessarily know what those models might be. So right. it's yeah. more exploratory. But but um, OTP offload is obviously in a, a very quick place to start. Like sure. you bring data in, build your reports on top of that data. Then you can put business analysts on top of it, let them look at it as well, and then you can move on to being like data driven and doing machine learning. Um, but there's certainly a hype cycle, right? Like right. you've got big data hype cycle and then cloud hype cycle mm-hmm. and then AI hype cycle. And um, the downside of that is people think that they need to be doing big data, but that means that they're just putting data somewhere and they're not doing anything with it. Right. So they're not actually driving any value. Yeah. Right. So that's the key is to actually drive value out of that data. You know, same thing with cloud. Um, there's some people that think they're going to like shut down their data centers and move everything to the cloud. The reality is, is that's not going to happen. There's right. going to be more of a hybrid solution yeah. where people have Clutter on-prem or in the cloud or both. And then the same thing with machine learning and AI. They refer to it as artificial intelligence. It's you know it's really machine learning, right? right? Yeah. And and again, we're using some of the algorithms that have been designed decades ago, but now we have the hardware and and the volumes of data to actually like implement these algorithms gotcha. with accuracy. I want to add one more thing to that. So, you said what is big data? So. I would be. I'm a real strong believer in big data. Is not physically big data. It's not about having a billion rows of one dimension of data. Mm-hmm. We we have this term in in um, big data or in, in analytics and whatever you want to call it called dimensionality. And for me, you know, big data is not about a billion rows of one form of data. It's about bringing and combining multiple diverse sources of data to enrich an answer and come up with a more Balanced. Mm-hmm. It's about the variety. Of, of, yeah. yeah, and and this is the thing. So if someone said to me, "Oh, we've got all this data," and I'm like, "But if all you've got is a billion rows of sales data, the only answer you're going to be able to answer is sales." Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, what company just has sales? Companies have marketing. They have customer services. They have customer retention. They have product development. They have all these different strands. As a company, you can't make a decision about how you're going to sell better by just looking at all sales data. You need right. to understand all of these different contributing metrics to understand. And I say. That's not easy, but nor is big data. But then the result you'll get out is infinitely more valuable. Mm-hmm. So, well, I think some of the things that have made big data and this platform in general easy is the ability to just put any types of data in there. So, mm-hmm. to your point, to get to high dimensionality, you're going to have a lot of different data types. Yeah. And you're not dependent on some centralized organization creating a schema for you to write to. You can just dump your data there and then you can define a schema on top of it and yeah. you can start doing analytics right away. Mm-hmm. So, so it's it's very quick to be able to spin up a cluster, start dumping data in that cluster, define schemas on top of that data, and then start doing analytics on that data very yeah. quickly. Yeah, and I suppose that's not. And I suppose for for people that are scratching their head about schemaless data, essentially, it's you put it into fundamentally like a, a NoSQL database as a as a document almost, and then you d- define the schema when you actually came to want to extract the data. You'd say what matches this particular type of field I want and then pull it out and then process from there is that well I mean it, more from the sense of you could put any file that you want in HDFS mm. um, and so and then whenever you want to you can define the schema on top of that data yeah 
So depending on what it is, um, processing XML data, right? You can transform that data and explode it into different tables if you want to. Um, storing JSON data and then extracting different tables out of that JSON data. Yeah. Um, NoSQL databases are for different use cases. If you think about the different data stores, right? You have HDFS, then you have HBase, which is an open source implementation of Google's Bigtable, and then you now have Kudu, which is an open source implementation along the lines of Google Spanner, but it's columnar-based instead of row-based, and it's for OLAP workloads instead of OTP workloads. Um, and, and so you have these different storage mechanisms, and, and you need to use the right storage mechanism for the right use case. Yeah. And so if you have like if you have sparse data, and it's it's a key value pair, then yes, HBase would be the right solution for that. If you're trying to implement like near real time streaming with updates or change data capture, then putting Impala on top of Kudu with um, Tableau or Akita Data or something, some sort of dashboarding tool on top of that solution will give you like near real time dashboards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. <laughs> We've we, I, I think I've never heard so many uh, open source projects mentioned in in about ten second sentence, uh, and it warms my heart. It, it <laughs> that really was awesome. Did, it really does. Well, that's what makes it complex, unfortunately. Yeah, mm. exactly. I, I think one of the things I, I really want to bring it back to is it is complex. It's incredibly complex. But I think working with a partner like Cloudera is where it becomes much more simple because you've got you know I think one of the areas. I mean, so everyone has at some point this dream of I could build it myself I could DIY it right everything you've just said is open source it's free you could download it off the internet and put it together yourself but that isn't that is a recipe for disaster we absolutely see that working with partners is Mm. more successful yeah working with partners and more importantly you know I think where your where Cloudera starts where the open source stuff finishes is in the security but also your deployment tools your ability to bring all the bits together at the Security, very different the levels. The management, absolutely. I mean, for the, for, I've done this once before and never did it again. I tried to update a cluster, a Hadoop cluster from one version to another. In fact, I don't think I did the whole thing. I think I just tried to update a couple of little bits. Mm. Everything broke. <laughs> it just fell apart in about three seconds flat and I was never able to recover it. That says, you know, this stuff is... is quite fragile when it's when it's not it's, dealt it's incredibly properly. complex the configurations for these projects is incredibly complex yeah. i had the same experience with trying to set up apache hbase on my own <laughs> i remember the first time i used clutter manager to set it, spin up a cluster and i couldn't believe how simple it was yeah i have a 10 node hadoop cluster in my basement at home <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> it, ma- it makes it so much more approachable and manageable yeah and uh i think that's going to be that's going to be a real powerful one so just to finish off the reason that we're talking with cloudera is we've recently signed cloudera as a as a vendor of ours and uh we, they're going to be filling a very big sort of gap we've had in the portfolio for quite a while around that. Absolutely, big, we're looking at IoT analytics and yeah. predictive maintenance, and and you know, fundamentally powering the enterprise to be able to better understand and, and better sort of take advantage of the data yeah. that they've uh, they've got today. So, look, Christoph, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you ever so much for coming on. Thank you both. Really Absolutely. appreciate it. We'll have to have you back again soon. Pleasure. Awesome. Right. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you, David. You bet. Yeah. Okay. See you next time. See you next week. Cheers. Thanks so much for listening. To contact us on Twitter, use hashtag AeroBandwidth, and we'll see you next week.